Welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast with Ruth Haley Barton. In this season of the podcast, Ruth invites leaders with diverse callings and expertise to dialogue and explore how spiritual transformation intersects with some of the most significant topics of our time. Well, friends, today we have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Robert Creech onto our podcast, and this podcast season is called Ruth and Friends, and I need to acknowledge to you that Robert is a new friend. Um, He is a friend that's come to me through his writings, especially his book, Family Systems and Congregational Life, A Map for Ministry, and so I encountered his book just a few months ago and enjoyed it so much that I wanted to have a conversation with him and just share it with a few of our closest podcast friends. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for being with us today. It's a privilege. Thanks, Ruth. You're welcome. Well, um, the Transforming Center has valued family systems theory and its impact on leadership for a very long time. In fact, our mantra, the best thing you bring to leadership is your own transforming self, is actually true precisely because of family systems theory and truth. Um, The fact that a transforming leader's presence is going to impact the system in positive ways, that as a leader continues their own journey of transformation, their transformational journey will force the uh, organization or the community to interact, uh, to change, to resist. Um, But eventually, the leader's ability to be on that transformational journey, which includes dealing with one's um, own family, family of origin, looking at those systems and one's place in the system and how one brings that to leadership, um, those things will have a positive effect um, in the end, in the end, there could be some sabotage first, but the transforming leader is, in fact, in in the end, the leader that brings about the most um, transformational change within a congregation or an organization. So that's our topic for today. And um, in our own efforts to really raise the value of transforming church, churches where people are experiencing transformation regularly and routinely. We understand family systems theory to be absolutely essential to transforming church. So Robert, would you give us just a little bit of a history of your own journey with family systems theory and what's brought you to this place of knowing so deeply just how significant family systems theory is to our life and congregations? Sure. Um, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, I read a book and thought it was a nifty idea and started studying it. But uh, in reality, uh, I came into taking family systems theory seriously out of my own misery. Uh, I, <laughs> yes. um, I read Ed Friedman's Generation Generation shortly after it came out. I had just become pastor of a church in the Houston area, and it, a friend recommended the book, and I read it. And it's, it, was very, it was really intriguing, but I had no idea what to do with what I just read. And um, this was before the Internet, and... I didn't know who this Murray Bowen guy was that he re- referenced and there was no amazon.com to go find out. And so I just kind of put the book on the shelf and left it. And, um, a few years later, about seven or eight years later, uh, there were a series of events, both in my congregation, uh, and, uh, my own family that were in the category of crisis where, you know, literally the future was in question. And, um, I mean, it, it included, um, a staff member being involved in a um, clergy sexual misconduct. It included um, my youngest son being uh, expelled from school for possession of marijuana. It included all of this within about four months. My dad, who had emphysema, dying on Christmas Eve, and my doing conducting his funeral on 
my birthday two days later and then beginning a three and a half million dollar building campaign in the church the next month and uh it just and those were just one incoming you know missile after another and um over about the course of the year i was just fully exhausted spiritually emotionally otherwise began to get into counseling and eventually uh probably around 1996 uh began to i pulled that book back off the shelf and did a little research and found there was someone in our city who was on the faculty of the bowen center in georgetown and uh, she uh, did coaching and um, educational things and i went began to see her and started to work on this and it was literally for me i I see it it was life-saving and it was Mm -hmm. some time before i started thinking about how this impacted my work as a pastor and you know with congregants and but eventually that became clear and i just continued to read and study and go to counseling and work on practicing and um, it's that's been really the journey um like I said, it, it came somewhat out of my own misery. Yeah. Well, doesn't, doesn't that happen for most of us? When people ask me what got you into this work of spiritual transformation, I will always say because of my own need, because I knew I needed to change and I hadn't found ways <laughs> to change. And so um, <laughs> I could not agree with you more that you kind of wish you came in and into a more sanitized way, but it really isn't like that most of the time. We get into the yeah. stuff we get into because it's what we need, and, and God draws us through our need and our deep desire for transformation yeah, and, and change. I, you know, Ruth, I've, I've thought about, I mean, I teach this. In, yesterday, I was with a group of Methodist pastors in Houston, and I teach in my classes. But I sometimes wonder uh, how much family systems theory, and probably other things, can, <clears throat> can simply be taught if there's not already some sort of a, a sense of need, because, yes. uh, but I read a, I don't know where I read this, it may be in an Anne Lamott book, but it was about a rabbi who um, was approached by one of his students and said, uh, uh, you know, why, why do I practice? How do I become enlightened? And, and the rabbi said, well, uh, there's no, you can't become enlightened any more than you can cause the sun to rise. And the rabbi, so the student said, so why do I practice all these things? And he said, so you'll be awake when the sun rises. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think sometimes it's, it's like that. It's like, you know, if you can give people the concepts and they know it's there, like my book on the shelf that I stashed away, yeah. <clears throat> that uh, when the time comes, you, you, you might pull it back off and have the things that allow you to be awake for what's about to happen. Yes, yes. And new ways to pay attention to the things that otherwise we might have just participated in in all the old ways. And now we have a new lens to look through, a new way to participate um, in the systems that we're a part of. Yeah, that's a good way to A healthier way to participate in the systems that we're a part of. Well, um, before we get in, you know into the deep weeds of this, I wanted to mention that um, in my in my studies with family systems theory, I have engaged with the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center here in our area, and one of the things that 
they say at the very beginning is that family systems theory is such a different way of thinking and approaching life and relationships that you have to plan on working within it and working with the ideas and concepts and practicing for at least three years before yeah. before you can really feel that you are functioning in new ways. And, and, and that is really, really true. I didn't want to believe that was true. I wanted to believe that I was so smart that I could get it in less time. And it's not about smart. It's not about intellect. It's yeah. about actually changing the way you function. Um, and that takes practice and time and, and believing things that maybe go counter to what you've been trained in all your life. Yeah. You know? I, um, it's, you know, one of the things that I see happen, someone will read a book about family systems and think, okay, this is great. I'm going to teach this to my staff and, exactly. we're gonna, you know, I'm going to hold it, you know, and, uh, I really regularly encourage people, why don't you just live it for a while and then, you know, don't share the good news too soon. I, yes. I heard Dallas Willard one time, um, said that he, someone asked him about, his teaching on divine conspiracy or something. And they said, should we just maybe go back and get this book and teach our congregation? And, and he sort of leaned forward on the, the podium and said, you know, I found it best not to announce the revolution. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. Uh, Be a little bit more subtle with it. Yeah. Well, live it for a while yeah, and then exactly. see what happens. And that's what we say in the Transforming Center with our two-year Transforming Community experience. I actually ask people to prayerfully discern making a commitment not to share their journey while they're in it, um, mm. but rather to work with it for a while and keep it as a private place between them and God and a spiritual director. Live it before you start teaching it because Absolutely. when I'm working yeah. with a group of pastors, I know what's going to happen. They're going to be with us and then they're going to say, boy, that's going to preach. And the next Sunday they're going to be up preaching about it before they've actually lived it. And so exactly. there, there's a real wisdom in this. And I think too, when you mentioned that sometimes you know, people want to read the book and then start teaching it to their staff. I also think that there could be a bit of avoidance in there. Like I would rather teach this to others than exactly. have to work within my own family systems and do the hard work. And, and, and it's probably an expression, uh, you know, it's probably an anxious expression of what Bowen called the togetherness force. Mm -hmm. You know, if we just all have the same vocabulary and we can all say it the same way and all understand the same things, we'll do better rather than, working on oneself individually and uh, getting clear about, you know, what you think, what you believe and how you're going to do your relationships. And then out of that, maybe teaching eventually. Exactly. Well, um, those, th I think those are really good caveats as we begin this conversation that we too are encouraging people to do their own work in family systems theory, not just the learning, but the practice um, before we go out and preach this stuff to others. And, and don't just make it an intellectual exercise that I can learn a lot mm -hmm. about. This mm -hmm. is not an intellectual exercise. This is a practice. Um, you're going to practice some new behaviors and new ways of thinking and new ways of being um, so that it becomes your own. Well, um, then let's, let's dive into the conversation. And I want to mention your book, the book that really drew me to your work in ministry, and that is Family Systems and Congregational Life. A Map for Ministry by Robert Creech. Um, Robert, tell us your context now for ministry. I think you teach now. Yeah. Could you tell us that as well? Sure. I, I was a pastor of a congregation in Houston for 22 years, and 11 years ago, um, I got an opportunity and invitation to uh, join the faculty at the Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University, and I've uh, been doing that for the last 11 years, teaching mostly in the area of practical theology and pastoral leadership, and uh, Teaching family systems is one of the things I do in the leadership classes that I teach. 
Oh, wonderful. I wish I could come to one of your classes. Um, so I want to begin by calling out a statement that you make early on in your book, and it's and, and I believe it deeply. I say the, this in my own words sometimes, but I believe this statement very deeply, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this particular topic to our podcast community. You say early in the book, the pastor's survival may depend more on the ability to understand emotional systems than on skilled exegesis or preaching. That is a radical statement right there, and I agree with it wholeheartedly. In fact, what I've said to our folks is if you don't know what's happening in your congregation from a family system standpoint, you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, so please, please say more about that. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I'm involved in theological education and training. So uh, I think, you know, good biblical studies and good theological studies and um, homiletics and all those are important things, but it's really seldom that I see a pastor crash and burn because they can't do those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, People, you know, end up leaving ministry or wounding others often because they don't know how to manage themselves in relationships, either at home Mm -hmm. or uh, at the, in the congregation itself or or both. And um, that's just territory. We don't generally have maps for. And, we, we wander and uh, through it, you know, doing the best we can with what we got to work with. But often that's the place that, that does us in. So that, I, I think that's not discouraging good work on competent, you know, being a competent mm-hmm. pastor, but adding to that the need to understand how human relationships work and what our part is in that. Right. And then the other thing I think a bit of understanding that's just missing is that we think that what's happening in a moment is just what's happening in the moment. And that's rarely true. Mm-hmm. Right. What's happening in any given moment is actually happening on many levels that a person mm-hmm. is bringing to the church and probably to the pastor their own unresolved family issues and seeking to resolve them in the congregation. Um, somebody has commented that you know, the clerical collar is like a blank screen upon which everyone just projects their unfinished business, which is unfair to the pastor for sure. Um, they come into the community with an unconscious desire to work out the stuff they haven't been able to work out. And so it's just not true that what's happening in the moment is only what's happening in this moment. Everybody's not, family stuff is there, whether we acknowledge it consciously or not. Yeah, I, I just have a regular uh, mantra to say, you know, the issue is seldom the issue. Yes. <laughs> So whatever people are bringing to you, complaining about, dealing with, it's uh, to take that at face value and not understand the anxiety that's driving that yeah. uh, is to just step into a, you know, a mud hole. You're not going to uh, solving that issue. Is not going to solve the issue? Right. And I think that helps with, uh, you know, I think part of a strength of a leader is to refuse to personalize every single thing that happens. Because it's usually not personal. It's often not personal. No, it's in fact, I mean, it, if it is, you know it is. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, if you've messed up, you know you've messed up. And that's one thing. But, um, I, I mean, I have, a, I have a few war stories about that yeah. of, of where I either did or didn't accept the issue as the issue. And mm-hmm. what a difference it made when I understood that there's something else going on here. You know? Yes. Oh, that's so important. Well, so let me ask you, could you, and I know this is a hard thing to do in a short period of time, but could you define what exactly we're talking about when we talk about family systems theory, and then very briefly go over the basic concepts of family systems theory so that we can all sort of be on the same page with that. Okay. And, uh, 
uh, so this didn't turn into a, a mini lecture. Just uh, interrupt me, okay? I will. I'll do that. Okay. I promise okay. to interrupt you. That's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, Dr. Murray Bowen was uh, born in the early part of the 20th century and became a physician, went off to uh, in the Army in World War II as an Army physician, and came back after the war and um, began to study as a psychiatrist uh, human behavior. He had some really fascinating studies at the Menninger Center in Kansas and the National Institute for Mental Health. And he began to recognize that the family is the unit of treatment rather than focusing on on individuals as like Freudian theory and Jungian theory and as others have done it. So that was a pretty significant departure from the way that mental health had been approached in the past to see um, the family as the unit of treatment, not to say the schizophrenic daughter or son and um, that required a different way of thinking about how things work we're more used to thinking in a linear fashion so we just like billiard balls hitting each other you know a happens so b happens so c happened that caused d so really it's a's fault and we can find someone to blame we focus on an individual but systems thinking is just entirely different than that it's uh it recognizes that uh, every person in an emotional system, which forms when human beings are together for significant periods of time, especially around significant work together, families are emotional units, work systems can become that, congregations become that, that human behavior is pretty complex, that we are constantly monitoring at an unconscious level every person around us. We're, you know, we're attending to things like uh, who's approving of me and who's not approving who am I approving of and who's getting my disapproval who has expectations of me am I meeting their expectations what do I expect of them do they are they meeting my expectation who's in distress is anyone noticing that uh, should I go to them am I in distress is anyone aware of that who it just goes on and on mm-hmm. we're just running these uh, kind of monitor relationship monitoring monitoring programs in our brain unconsciously all the time and if we perceive for example that someone whose approval we desire we're not getting that we alter our attitude or behavior or tone of voice and they pick up on that and they're i mean it's just going back and forth all the time and so the idea is that if we're going to uh, that an individual does not have symptoms separate from the emotional system that they're in so he noticed how schizophrenic patients, for example, how their functioning improved if uh, their their father or mother dealt with them one way or another, uh, or how their functioning went down, and, and began to notice that. And then he noticed that that same sort of thing was happening in the more what you might call normal families that he was seeing in his clinical practice. It just it wasn't as pronounced. It was easier to see it in the extreme cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, then he, he just de- he developed over time what he called a scientific theory of human behavior. And what he was interested in was he didn't see Freud and Jung as scientific theories per se. They were based on mythology and literature and other things. But he really wanted to ground this in science. And the science that he felt best helped him understand human behavior was biology. So his is what's called a natural systems theory as opposed to say general systems that might compare us to an electrical system or a solar system or something. He's looking at what we share, we humans share in common with other life on the planet and the way that that kind of those behaviors have evolved over time 
And um, so he ultimately developed eight concepts that form his theory. And and, you, yeah, and I will uh, just interrupt for a moment and say that even though I, I often say family systems theory, I keep wanting to say human systems theory for the very reason that you just mentioned, that it's not just, it's not just about families. Right. Any humans who get together in any uh, significant way form systems that are human. Right. And we learn that in our families. Mm-hmm. We just take yes. it everywhere we go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad that you use the word human in there as well as family. So we just don't narrow it to just being about when we're in, in our families. Yeah. Sometimes, um, well, in some of my writing and, and work that we've done, we use the term living systems yes. that we're part of. And, uh, but the idea is that, yeah, we learned it in our families, mm-hmm. but it shows up everywhere. Exactly. Thank you. So, um, Anyway, he developed these eight uh, concepts. He almost had a ninth one uh, he was mm-hmm. thinking about before he died. But um, uh, to, the first one he called emotional triangles. And he uses these terms really distinctive ways. Emotional doesn't mean feeling for Bowen. It has to do with where in the brain the um, something originates. And emotional reactions, emotional triangles. This is stuff that is done automatically. It comes from a part of the brain that doesn't reason or think, but just reacts automatically. And so it, you have to use his terms the way he used them, but it, to speak about emotional reactivity or, uh, is to say it's automatic. It is uh, hardwired into our brain. We don't think before we do it. We have a frontal prefrontal cortex in our, you know, our human brain that allows us to override that, which is what part of our work is about, is how do we learn to override those automatic yes. responses. So his first concept was emotional triangles, which is just to say that when two people in a relationship get uncomfortable, one of them gets uncomfortable with the other, they will bring in a third person. They will, you know, go, if A gets uncomfortable with B, A goes and tells C what a jerk B is. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is the, the anxiety that really belongs in that relationship between A and B that they should work out uh, has now been given over to C. And the next mm-hmm. time B runs into C, he, he doesn't understand why, they're, why C's uncomfortable with him. Uh, and this is, this is just human behavior. It's, it's Martha, you know, walking into the room where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and saying, and not addressing Mary and saying, my sister, uh, I know you like to hear Jesus teach, but right now, why don't you come help me in the mm-hmm. kitchen and then we can both do this. Yes. Instead, she goes in and says, Lord, tell my sister to come help me, you know, and uh, that's a triangle. It's just yep. turning to the third person. Um, and <clears throat> we get invited into those all the time and learning to manage ourselves in those triangles and is part of what work on ourself is about. <clears throat> the second concept is he called the scale of differentiation of self, which is just really a way, it's a big mouthful, but it's to say that he know, began to notice that families differed in their capacity to handle rising anxiety or threat in their life, and that some families very quickly produced symptoms and other families did better at that and did not so quickly produce symptoms. And so he called this a scale of differentiation and he he it was arbitrary there's no test you can take to find out where you're on it or anything like that but it was zero to a hundred and so 100 on the scale he said would represent that perfect human being who completely was able to stay in relationship with people even when anxiety is high 
and not take on their anxiety, but be connected to them, be able to love them, um, and not, as opposed to further down the scale where we react to other people's anxious reactivity and we, we can't stay in a healthy relationship with them. Uh, we end up taking on their stuff and reacting to them. There's a chapter in that book on Jesus and differentiation of self, in which I sort of take Bowen's words, this is reserved for the perfect human being. You know, how does Jesus look if you look at him through the lens of emotional maturity? It's another term Bowen used, or differentiation of self. So that was the second one, just observing that people differ in their capacity to manage anxiety and uh, to... Uh, the goal of working on oneself is to, or to differentiate itself, is to become, gain a greater capacity uh, to manage ourself in the face of anxiety and to use our thinking part of our brain more uh, in, that, in those moments than the automatic reactivity. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It absolutely does. I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of Jesus when the crowd was really angry and he just passed through the crowd. Yeah. Um, he didn't. He didn't take it on. He didn't pick it up. He didn't engage it. He didn't try to argue. He didn't do anything. He just passed on through the crowd. I mean, that yeah. is to me a picture of Jesus' way of being differentiated. Yeah. Or when and he it, said to his parents, "You know, I'm about my father's business." You know, he clearly mm-hmm. showed there that he was not enmeshed. Um, he was connected but mm-hmm. he wasn't taking on their emotions and their purposes for him. Yeah, and, and you know, so, which raised for me the very first time I started thinking about that was, uh, so if the, the goal of spiritual formation is Christ-likeness, not becoming divine, but becoming fully human mm-hmm. as, Je- as Jesus was, as we were created to be, um, you know, well, what might differentiation of self or emotional maturity, what part might that play in the process of spiritual formation, which we could talk yes. about sometime more yes. too. But uh, at any rate, that's, that scale of differentiation or scale of emotional maturity is his second concept. Yes, the, it's the ability to differentiate a self while staying connected. Right. Yep. Thank uh, you. To hold the words. There's a lot of definitions of yes, that, ways to describe is. it. Yeah. Right. The third concept is one that I find most practically helpful in um, – in life really he called it a family emotional process and so again the word emotional has to do with automatic reactivity and he said that human beings only have four um you know four things in our repertoire of what we do automatically when anxiety rises now these can be overridden but running on automatic Mm -hmm. we will when anxiety rises in our system uh, that we're part of or in our own life, we only have four things we do automatically. And uh, this is so helpful to me. One, yeah. And this sounds familiar. We're used to things like flat, fight or flight or freeze. This is same thing. But Bowen's terms are, he says, one is we, we engage conflict. That's one thing we do when anxiety rises. We get more touchy. Uh, we have a chip on our shoulder. We more likely to pick a fight. We are uncomfortable with people disagreeing with us. Uh, we want everybody to think the same. I mean, there's a lot of ways that, you know, it takes up, but conflict is one of those. Mm-hmm. 
The second one is distance, like flight. Mm-hmm. Um, with anxiety is so high in a relationship that we withdraw from it. Well, we might physically withdraw from it, mm-hmm. but we might just shut down, keep our conversation superficial, not say what we really think. Um, in a work system, people might uh, not return emails or phone calls or text messages in a timely fashion or shut themselves off or set themselves at a staff meeting and occupy themselves with their cell phone. I mean, there's a lot of ways to distance, but it's an emotional automatic thing that says, I can't handle the anxiety that's present here in this relationship. So I'm pulling out of it. Yeah. Can I ask you a question right there? Because I think it would be helpful. It'd be helpful to me. What is the difference between distancing that shows a lack of, you know, differentiation and boundaries in a relationship that's toxic or, um, yeah, yeah, toxic or... (coughs) really very negative in one's life? Yeah, and that's a great question. I I think any given behavior, almost any given behavior, could either be an automatic anxious response or a principled uh, decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't tell by looking at it on the outside. Uh, A person who's just had enough of a relationship and they don't know how to handle it, they don't know what to do with it, might just say... They might use all the language of I've got I'm setting boundaries and I'm doing this. What they're really doing is distancing and cutting off. Yes, yes. But another person might say, you know, I love you. I really want the best for you. Yeah. But um, right now you're asking me to <clears throat> do things or engage in a way that's outside my principles, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to, you know, they may set some boundaries and just choose more intentionally how they relate to that. that or or they're, they're, the patterns are so negative, like you know, outbursts of anger or mm-hmm. manipulation well, I, or things yeah. like that, that just can't be tolerated on and on and on. Yeah. And it's our incapacity. I mean, it would still, I think, largely be uh, evidence of my immature, my emotional immaturity to say, I can't figure out another way around this. I can't mm-hmm. figure out a way to stay connected to you. And yet, keep my own anxiety down. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if, you know, physical violence is involved or life-threatening things, I mean, just clearly, uh, you, that's not a place to stick right. around. With. Right. But it is these relationships, particularly these hard ones, that most challenge our immaturity. And that those are the places where we at. This is, ne- this is another thing I hear people, I think, twist systems theory a little bit. It's like, if I could just learn all of these as if they were techniques, I could manipulate my wife or my husband or my children or my congregation. And this, every time we think that anything remotely like that, we have ceased to work on ourselves. We have taken our eyes and put them on the other. And, um, that's, you know, that's, uh, an anxious thing to do. So, So the inner reality of whether or not my behavior is reactive or whether or not it is principled, is mm-hmm. is the key right there, which cannot be always known or observed from the yeah. outside. It's, it can only be known from the inside. Yeah, you, you, could, you could confront somebody yeah. out of anxious, you know, conflictual reactivity, or you could confront someone out of a principled, you know, choice. And right. you, you, you just can't tell from the outside. <clears throat> right. So, uh, conflict. So, continue on, yes. Yeah. Emotional processor, the automatic responses are conflict or distance. A uh, third one is over and under functioning, yeah. or what Bowen called sometimes mm-hmm. reciprocal functioning. And that is when anxiety rises, 
there are some people, over-functioners, who suddenly take over. They, right. they want to think for other people, tell them what to think. They take things out of their hands and do it for them. They tell them how to do things. They just try to take over. And every over-functioner has an under-functioner that they do deserve because <coughs> you have to have both. And so uh, it is an anxious response to become irresponsible when anxiety rises, and some in the system will do that. <clears throat> and uh, sometimes everybody will agree the underfunctioner is the problem, but the overfunctioner's got a role to play mm-hmm. in yes. keeping this thing going. <clears throat> right. uh, in a family, you might see that maybe in terms of an alcoholic, um, say, husband uh, whose spouse calls the boss and makes excuses mm-hmm. for him and covers for him and does all of that. There's an overfunctioner in that case, the wife, and an over underfunctioner, the alcoholic. <clears throat> but they both keep the dance going, and uh, so that's uh, that's an automatic response. The the other one is uh, the same as the first concept. It's really just triangling. That when anxiety rises, uh, we find someone to worry about in common, or someone to blame, or someone to point our finger at, someone to gossip about. Um, triangling is behavior that is an anxious automatic response. The reason I said this is like one of the more practical pieces for me is uh, if you think about, uh, say, a dashboard on a car with uh, some instruments on it. So you've got a conflict meter and a distance meter and a over-under functioning meter and a triangling meter. At any given time in my family or congregation, those needles are never going to be on zero. They're going to always, Mm -hmm. there's some ambient level of anxiety and automatic responses going on all the time, but there's some ambient level and and where they just, you know, they hang. But if you begin to see one or more of those needles move, uh, there's more conflict. There's more withdrawal or distancing. Some of the over-functioners are piping up and taking over. They're trying The gossip is increasing, any of those kind of things. You see the needles move. Uh, That tells you, that anxiety is rising in the system. And it doesn't help to grab the needle and pull it back to zero. Uh, that doesn't refill your gas tank, you know, and it doesn't cool your engine down to do that. Uh, so to address the symptom of conflict or the symptom of distancing is sort of like, as we said earlier, we we're talking the issue is seldom the issue. Uh, the issue is anxiety. And so asking helpful questions like, what's changed? Why is this needle moving now instead of last week or last month? Um, what's changed? What's my part in it? What part am I playing in this anxious moment? How do I change my part? Uh, those kind of questions are useful when you see those emotional processes start to fire up. Well, Robert, we've gotten for, through the first three concepts. There are eight, and so we want to be able to complete that list with you. So I think we're going to um, go on to a part two and let you finish up the concepts as well as the two of us having a conversation about the implications for our life in congregations. As we've been talking today and as you've been moving through these concepts with us, I've been drawn to think about that verse in Ephesians 4 that says we must grow up in every way into him who is our head, Jesus Christ. And then Paul's comment, when I became an adult, I put away childish things. Hmm. And when I think about systems, human systems, living systems, family systems, I feel like biblically, this is the call, you know, that we are being invited to put away those ways in which we might have interacted as children unconsciously. But this invitation to see things through a family systems lens 
is an invitation to grow up a little bit. Would you agree with that? I would. Yes. That yeah. um, this isn't just a scientific idea or a theory that, that this is a part of our Christian formation is that we would put away childish patterns and behaviors and grow up and take more responsibility for ourselves uh, and how we interact and participate in family systems. So um, Robert, do you have a practice for us? Do you have something that we could practice coming out of this particular episode? Yeah, I, there's it, one of the most basic beginning practices is to be to try to see what we haven't seen before, which is to start to notice. Uh, if you want to, um, the easiest thing to notice would be those four things I just listed there: conflict, distance, over under functioning, and uh, triangling. To to say, I begin to notice that the rising of anxiety. You can notice anxiety rising sometimes in your own i mean sometimes it's physical it may be a knot in your stomach that says i'm uncomfortable in this relationship or in this conversation uh and to begin to notice what your typical responses are do you move toward being argumentative and conflictual do you withdraw and separate yourself Mm -hmm. do you become irresponsible or overly responsible or do you feel the need to go pull somebody else in and Mm -hmm. talk just noticing that whether you do anything about it or not is a beginning thing to be able to see the needles on the dials move. And when you can see it, uh, then you've got an option about doing something about it later, but it begins with seeing what you can't currently see. Yes. Because then a next step out of that could be then taking more responsibility for oneself rather than blaming it on everybody else. Exactly. say, Oh, this is me. This is what I do. This is my reaction. And I can, I can take some responsibility for that. Whether I can control everything else, that's another topic, but I can control myself and I can take responsibility for myself. Yeah. At least I can start working on controlling myself. Yes. And you can't do that unless you observe, unless you notice, which is why what you're saying, it's such a powerful practice. So as we conclude part one of um, our time together with Robert Creech, we can hear this invitation to just notice and observe what we do and to bring that into our consciousness so that perhaps eventually we can take more responsibility for our behaviors and the systems that we are a part of. I love that we're ending with something that we can actually do and take it beyond just being a theoretical system of thoughts. So thank you, Robert, so much. Um, And we're going to continue this conversation, this really important conversation in part two. But now before we go on, um, Robert, would you also tell us how we can learn more about you and your work if we're interested? Sure. Um, the, the two main um, contributions I've tried to make, one is this book on family systems and congregational life. It came out last year, and then just this week, a second edition of The Leader's Journey came out, <clears throat> which is a book on personal transformation of the leader and the impact that has upon the transformation of <clears throat> the groups that are being led, uh, the people. Uh, so that that's another book with Baker Academic. Uh, and those are two places. Um, that's, well, that's, yeah. that's wonderful. And we will have both of those titles in our show notes. Do you have a website or anything that you would want to direct um, us to? Well, I, I do have a, a blog that I keep that's not about any of this. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, the work on transforming our farm into uh, native grasses. <laughs> so, mm, wow. Uh, but <laughs> that's <it's>, different. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's... Uh, uh, blog, it's ubcsp.blogspot.com, and uh, we post on there as the prairie changes. This is a project we've been on for about, we're in our second year of it, and it's a long-term project. 
working with nature and creation to try to restore some land to native grasses. So Beautiful. Wonderful. Well, Robert, thank you so much, and we'll look forward to being with you in part two. Thank you, Ruth. On behalf of Ruth and the entire Transforming Center staff, thank you so much for listening. We're currently accepting applications for our next Transforming Community Spiritual Formation Experience for Christian Leaders. You can learn more by visiting transformingcenter.org slash TC. This podcast is a ministry of the Transforming Center and is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you've enjoyed Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also become a partner of the podcast and get exclusive benefits by visiting transformingcenter.org slash patron. Thanks so much for your support and for listening to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership.